Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 105. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is juggler and cane twirling master, Drew Brown. Before we get to Drew, let's thank our sponsor and host, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Don't forget, the big festival will be held this year, July 11th through the 17th, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Also, go to Amazon and check out my books. All right, drop everything. Get ready for Drew Brown. Well, one of the best things about being a podcaster is getting to connect with old friends. So welcome to Drop Everything number 105, my special guest, Mr. Drew Brown. Hello, Drew. Hey, thanks, Dan, for inviting me. It's uh, it's actually a really good honor. Well, it's an honor for me, too, and it's been quite a while. I think it's been... Yeah, too long. Gosh, I might say 20 years or so. so. <laughs> it's been too long. I'll, I'll say a decade. Yeah, about a decade, a decade. We had that feud, I guess. You don't call me, I don't call you. It's... It's a, <laughs> a lot of tension over the years, but no, you know how it is. We see mostly at conventions and juggling events, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, the last couple of years there hasn't really been in any person juggling events. But uh, we got a big one coming up this summer, of course, the IGA Festival in Cedar Rapids. Yes, and isn't that a special number, like seventy-five? It is seventy-five exactly. Right. I directed the seventieth in in two thousand and seventeen. And Afton Benson is the director of this year's festival. And it's back at the same place, uh, Grand Rapids, Iowa. I think it's July 11th through the 17th, I think. We'll okay. double check that. But that's that's the best of my knowledge. That's when the... And I think it's going to be the first in-person one since the one David Kane did in... in uh, where was he at? Fort Wayne, I think, Indiana? I'm not sure. But it's been a while. <laughs> Yeah, when's the last one you went to? Oh, man, I think 2012 or 2013, somewhere in there. That's probably the last time we saw each other then. Right. Wherever that one was. Yeah. Do you remember where it was? I don't remember. Uh, no, and I looked it up. I have a problem with memory sometimes. <laughs> well, anything past uh, last year. It's literally on the freaking Kane Freestyle website that I edited last night. <laughs> so, oh, well, okay, then you should remember, but I have no idea. <laughs> maybe I want to say like Winston-Salem maybe or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and I uh, didn't want to go back to Winston-Salem, but yes. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, talking about going back, uh, before we talk about how juggling entered your life and, of course, your specialty uh, with the Canes, let's talk about your, your upbringing. Where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? Well, I was born in Germany, Bad-Konstadt, oh. Germany, and my dad is a military. He's a retired lieutenant colonel, and my mother, she worked at the Girl Scouts Nation's capital for a while. So I have, like, you know, my childhood included brownies, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Weeblos, etc. And we moved, but not too much, just in high school. Well, we have that in common because my mother was very involved with the Girl Scouts as a Girl Scout leader, mm-hmm. and uh, we went on several adventures with the Girl Scouts. Some of those girls still stay in touch with my mother, and we're talking, this was uh, 60 years ago or something, 65 years ago. So definitely makes an impact on the people who are involved in those kind of organizations, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts. Yep. And my sister actually is a gold leaf, so she went all the way, so we have oh. a heavy, heavy influence. And I forgot to mention, I grew up in the DMV area. But I also moved to Kansas, which kept me out of jail. Well, what does what DMV stand for? DMV? I didn't understand that. What was that? D.C., Maryland, Virginia. Oh, okay. Because if you say Virginia, it, could, it sounds like North Carolina. So, like, there's a big part of Virginia that's North Carolina. 
I don't, okay, so you're saying Virginia sounds like North Carolina. I don't, they don't sound yeah. like exactly the same to me. You're saying they're very close to each other geographically? And- well, I mean, culturally, like the suburb of D.C. is very different than, say, Richmond, Virginia. It's, I gotcha. It's very different. The suburb of D.C., I mean, I could walk to the National Monument if I tried to. And your dad was always involved in the military throughout your childhood? Mm-hmm. Yes, and he worked at everywhere from the Pentagon, and he just kept moving around to different bases in that area so that we could have more stability. Oh, and how did you feel about that? Did you feel you like the new experiences? Did you kind of just feel like you were sort of always the, the odd person out, or were you able to make friends quickly? How were you as a young man? It was both. I have a severe problem with ADHD, even as an adult. And so I had difficulty in school. And so I ended up having to change schools for that reason once. So I went to private school for a year and did really well uh, when I can learn at my own pace. And then in high school, I moved a lot. So that was, it was a double-edged sword. The good part was I could just reinvent myself. I could just recreate my whole entire reputation and personality kind of. And the downside was I missed out on, well, I don't really have a graduating class. Now, did they, they talk about it as ADHD back then, or were you just sort of a, considered a rambunctious child? No, I was back before it became so cool. <laughs> before it was trendy. Back in fourth grade, they had me on Ritalin. In fact, they got me into music because of the whole gross motor skills and hyperactivity, so they suggested I do music, and I was such a not a very good student, and they brought band to the school in my elementary school and they were like, Hey, you can join band to get out of class. So that's why I joined band. Like <laughs> it's just always been that way for me since probably second grade up. Yeah. It's funny too. Cause I didn't know you had such a musical background. I mean, obviously when people go to the juggling festivals, their primary focus is juggling and talking about juggling and watching juggling. But I didn't know you had this whole history in music and in the arts before you got involved with juggling. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. What was your what was your first instrument? I want to take a quick aside and uh-huh. say you and Jack Dinger and Cindy Marvel, you know, all had this band background. I, and I had a marching back, uh, band background as well. So I found that to be very interesting. My first instrument, very first, was probably like a recorder or harmonica. And I was actually pretty good at this harmonica, and then I lost it. <laughs> well, I, had a, I had a musical background, but I was never in marching band or any kind of official band. I was the fifth Beatle for a while, but that's not really something I talk about. <laughs> but I've always been interested in music, and I play uh, piano, and you know, I've learned, learned different instruments over the years just as a kind of a challenge for myself. And one of my mm-hmm. instruments is also the recorder. because I think mm. it's a great sort of entryway into music and reading music. Because mm-hmm. it's only the one part of the staff. It's not the, the whole, the whole part. Is you you just focus on the melody line and everything. It's right. a little bit simpler. Right. But it still takes a, it takes some time to make a nice noise out of it, and not uh, mm-hmm. not just the uh, the squeaks that uh, most elementary school kids can do with the recorder. So and also the harmonica. And I also hear that you that you whistle. Is that Yes. Uh, yeah. I, and it, well, now I do it mostly for dog training. But yeah, I, I definitely spent quite a bit of time on that. And um, <laughs> well, I hate to put you on the spot. Could you, could no, you possibly no, give us a no, no, let's not do that. <laughs> Maybe have a, you a know, dog actually, whistle or something? Or <laughs> That is actually one of the biggest goals that I have. It's like a bucket list item, but I've never uh, learned to whistle with my fingers. 
And so I feel like I'm just not a good whistler just because of that. Oh, but you kind of have a musical whistle. Like you learn to do some songs whistling, right? Not just dog Yes. And you know, what's also interesting is this was really eye-opening, but about halfway through my music career, the band instructor said, everybody sing your part instead of playing the instrument. And it was amazing how in tune everybody was, how much ear training had happened. Yeah. Because you wouldn't think that all the band would be good singers. But that's when we started a men's glee club in high school. Uh, it was all band members and orchestra members that moved over. It wasn't the chorus guys. It was mostly band and orchestra. Well, I think I think you helped to be being able to be in tune and recognize when you're in tune. Mm-hmm. Like I get that a lot, you know, playing the electronic piano because it's always in tune. So it's kind of easy to to sort of see if you're singing in tune or not compared to like my regular piano, which goes out of tune uh, quite a bit. Yes. Because I had it just a cheap upright. So it never, you know, and I never would be very diligent about getting it tuned. And yeah. So it just sounded so bad. I had to break down and get someone to do it. So... So also a singer. But how about uh, later on, we'll try to get a little song with you? <laughs> or is that... Oh, um, <laughs> That's um, like so the whistling? My, my thing with music is it's like I have to be in shape or I'm out of shape right now, right? Yeah. Same yeah. with juggling. Um, you, you may experience this like if you work on a certain pattern for a long time every day, you're good. And then you kind of fall off and you got to bring it back. You know what I mean? Oh, you definitely lose it. I mean, there's, there's definitely certainly tricks, too, that you lose, I think, just because you age out of them. Mm-hmm. Well, that, too. I mean, I, I let some stuff go, like the five clubs or the seven balls or the higher technical stuff for me was always a challenge, even when I yes. was younger. And yes. now that I juggle mostly just for my own amusement, it's pretty easy because I never really found those things as enjoyable as just three ball freestyle or, or devil sticks or stuff that was just more jammy mm-hmm. than the harder technical tricks. Let's yes. go back to music, though, because you actually played some quite a few different instruments, uh, including mm-hmm. the trombone. Yes, bass trombone especially was one of my favorites. Well, actually, I had a love-hate relationship with the trombone. <laughs> what what, what did you uh, love about it and what you hate about it? Well, I never really comprehended it fully. Okay, that was a problem. Like, understanding <laughs> okay. where the partials were, where all the notes are, so that yeah. I could, like, improv. If you were to say, what don't you get, I'd be like, it's hard to explain because it's pretty obvious but I just didn't get it. Well, I can see that because it's more of a feel thing. Like on the piano, you know where the, the different accidentals are and the different tones. On the trombone, it's more of a, a, like a, a feel thing, right? But bass trombone, I will say, as far as the sound and, you know, that whole line and uh, sleigh ride and just there was, there's so many things with the bass trombone that are just nice, I think. But yeah, I did tuba, low brass, piano, voice when I'm in shape. Yeah, that's about it. I never liked instruments like that because you have to create the embouchure. Like I like stuff you could sort of start from the beginning and it sounded decent. Oh, yeah. Like the brass stuff is just like, at first it just sounds like what, ducks farting or something, right? It's, it's not... very bad. I was very, <laughs> well, actually, you know, that's the good point. I took the mouthpiece off and just practiced with that for a while. But yeah, it was a big deal to get that. It took me probably two, three days to get a decent note out of the trombone. And when it comes to embouchure, you're right. I never could say uh, play the trumpet because I could never get my embouchure right for that particular trumpet or the French horn, et cetera. Well, that's why I like something like the piano because you just touch it. You touch middle C and it sounds like middle C. Mm-hmm. The access to it is quite uh, quite accessible even to non-musicians. 
Now, yes. you, you also are classically trained at the piano. What are some mm-hmm. of your favorite uh, piano pieces to play? Scott Joplin is my everything to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I memorized six Scott Joplin pieces, so there's that. And then most of it was kind of like blues and bluesy jazz and jazz standards from the 30s and 40s. So that's where it was. And I actually tried to turn pro in Austin for a little bit. Just didn't feel I was quite good enough. But they had like three and a half piano bars in Austin, Texas, when I first moved there. So I started practicing a lot to do that. And you practiced to be part of one of those dueling piano shows. Those are fun. Because mm-hmm. to me, not to take anything away from other entertainers, but I kind of feel like the dueling piano is the Navy SEAL of entertainment. Because you've <laughs> got the comedy, you've got the bits, you've got the musicianship, you've got the improv. I mean, you're, you have to do just, you've got dance. It's everything. You bring every, it's, you're a variety artist, just straight up. And it's got to be, a lot of it isn't just canned responses. It's on the fly. And are you a Victor Borga fan? Is that something, someone you enjoyed? I, no, I don't have that much culture. <laughs> <laughs> well, he certainly combined uh, comedy and, and uh, you know, great piano skills in a very mm-hmm. rare way. And I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Victor Borga. But in my notes, it says you learn to cry while playing rhythm and blues. So maybe mm-hmm. during this uh, podcast, I can, if I can't get you to sing or whistle, maybe I can get you to cry a little bit. Yeah, I used to, I don't know how I would do it, but I would play like this. Uh, I would have blues and I would just play really slow and just, I don't know, you can get to where you can cry. So a tear would kind of leak down your cheek while you're playing. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. I could get to the whole sobbing thing if I really worked at it. I guess actors do the same thing. And I think on one of your podcasts, somebody mentioned about, oh, yeah, wasn't it you that needed to get slapped in the face? I did need to get slapped. Yeah, when I was in the one movie I was in as a, as a kid. Yes. Uh, her name was Sharon Farrell, and I'm still, I still hold a grudge. But it was like they wanted to get me to cry, and so basically she slapped me in the face. Yeah, it's like slapstick humor. But it didn't really work. I mean, I was just like, I guess I was a tough kid. So they basically, the guy said, hey, throw some water in the kid's puss. Ugh. Which was, uh, you know. Oh, and also, like, I had some ammonia. And they cracked yes. the thing under my nose. And, Did uh, that and they, work? Oh, uh, yeah. It was the great okay. opus, It's Alive. Yes, I heard about this movie, <laughs> and I'm dying to see it. Where Where can I find this masterpiece? Nowhere. No, it's, it's available someplace. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but I was, you know, I was in uh, kids' theater and stuff before I was a juggler. Uh-huh. And I think having a background in the arts, like, you know, whether it's music or, or drama, it does give you kind of a, a certain sense when you get to juggling, whether it's the rhythm or especially as a performer and performing juggling, I think having some kind of performance background really helps to kind of then translate as a performing juggler. Did you feel your your background in music has really helped you in your juggling? Um, I, I think it was a blend of that. And then one time I did this thing where I was kind of doing stand-up comedy on a street corner. And I think that helped me. But juggling really helped me a lot on a lot of different areas of my life. And I used to have a lot more stage fright uh, before juggling. I I remember watching your tips from the pros uh, about dealing with stage fright. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I have quite a few because I think there's good techniques you can use. Uh, I think obviously stage fright is, is quite a mental situation as opposed to really a physical response. It's you sort of bring up all these fears and mm-hmm. doubts that never really come to pass. I mean, usually, if you if you you know stick with it. Oh well, I know what my biggest fear is, and it always happens. What's your biggest fear? Drop everything. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's the juggling thing, right? It's, it's music. Um, I think it was what Miles Davis said that if you hit a wrong note, it's not wrong unless the note after it is wrong. Right. Like you can recover. I mean, people can't even tell that that wasn't what you meant to do. Yes. But juggling is like falling and ice skating. If you drop, everybody knows you dropped. It's right. Not, not, so, not so easy to hide. Well, I found that my stage fright really is connected to lack of preparation. So like, for example, in this last show that I did last week, I was intentionally going to improv and I'm a bit out of shape. So I knew my drops would be a little bit higher than I'd like. So I know that if I'm doing a routine and I've practiced enough, then I have less problem with stage fright. Well, I mean, they say uh, if you fail to prepare, then prepare to fail. Yes, if you fail, yes, fail. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. It's, yeah. So I think, right. like you said, the more the more confident you can go in because you know you put in the work, the the mm. better you feel about it. But if you know, like, oh gosh, I've never even done this clean in rehearsal. Right. But you got to take risk too, though. Like it's so magical if you take the risk and it works. <laughs> I'll tell you, my my partner Barry Freeman always had a much better attitude. Like, oh, that won't happen. We won't drop. I'm like. But what if we do? What if we do? So, <laughs> so I'd always create like a plan B. It's like, okay, if we drop here, let's do this. So at least you have an out. Right. I didn't think of that in this last performance. I wish I had remembered it. <laughs> as we get into juggling, though, I really know you as a, a guy that is sort of a specialist mm -hmm. in a particular prop, which is uh, the cane, mm -hmm. the curved cane. What came first? Because that the cane that you do is sort of a traditional fraternity prop. Mm -hmm. I really know nothing about the history of the cane manipulation that you do. Can you explain a little bit about the prop you use uh, that we're most associated with, these short, curved-handled canes? Where mm -hmm. do those come from? So I was initiated as a member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated, and Kappas use canes traditionally from 60s through the present. And the art form is constantly evolving, like in the 70s, Using full-length canes was the norm, and then shorter canes came in the 80s, and then multi-cane uh, was late 80s and into the 90s. Now, was that something that you sort of helped to bring about this multi-cane with your exposure through juggling, or is that something that also was more traditional? No, it's not traditional at all. In fact, it's a little bit controversial. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, because, and I don't want to get too much into it, but there is some gatekeeping. And um, originally, the way I saw it is the fundamental purpose of Cap Alpha Psi is achievement, right? And mm -hmm. inside uh, the cane culture, basically, it, it really just boils down to two words, skill and style. That's it. So right. if you could outskill the other guy in a battle, you win the battle, as long as you also had enough style. Right. So you have to be able to communicate with the crowd because it's a performance art. But at the end of the day, if I'm using five canes and the other guy's using four canes, I should <laughs> win all things, all all other things being equal. And so we had this huge evolution from the 70s, 80s, 90s. And then when I came into it, actually, I started as an off-road unicyclist, right? And I used to think jugglers were wimps, like, you know, compared to this, sure. you know, off-road unicycling thing. Well, all the unicyclists kind of quit for fear of injury over time. The off-road, the most extreme stuff. Yeah. I was super into it, like doing a lot. I was doing hours a day and dropping weight just to do this unicycle. But the unicyclists met with the jugglers. 
So I wanted to continue my friendships with the unicyclists and jugglers. And so I decided, well, I'll start juggling or I'll start learning from the jugglers. And I really had this vision of a style where I could like throw canes up and do these really risky tricks and catch canes out of the air and fling them and toss them and everything. And I didn't really think of it as juggling. I thought of it as just the style that I was trying to create, kind of a martial arts juggling style. You can kind of think, get the shoe-ish. Yeah, the passing team from Germany. Now, did you have a background in martial arts that also helped you uh, with your physical activities? Yes, but I think that, that it wasn't that influence. I believe that it's just as an artist, like that's what I'm, I'm kind of just expressing my self. That's who I am. That's what's coming out. It's just natural that I'm going to perform that way, I guess. I don't know. So then once I did start learning with the jugglers, wow, they taught me all kinds of things like how to break down tricks and how to practice. But it wasn't necessarily easy to gain acceptance into the juggling culture immediately. Were there any jugglers in particular that helped you on your journey when you started out? Yeah, the same guys that kind of gave me some resistance. <laughs> <laughs> you want to want to mention any names? Give any shout outs to anybody? Or? Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll say uh, like when I first came there, they were like, you can't do this. Those canes are dangerous. Like that was an actual thing, you know? Dangerous for you or for the people around you? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that was right. the whole sentence, right? Because they're not sharp. They're just, they're just plastic canes, basically. No, actually, I started with wood canes. Oh, okay. So most kappas and whatnot, they use mostly wood canes. I actually invented the CPVC canes. Yeah, because that's what I remember you using were like these hollow pipe canes. Mm -hmm. They're made out of CPVC, which is hot water pipe, right? So I went to the IJA in 2007, and, and I could tell that the wood canes, they weren't uh, you know, people were kind of afraid they're going to hurt their hands or whatever. And wood canes don't really hold up well if you're walking. I used to walk like seven to 10 miles a day and juggle. The wood canes cracked really soon, right? So I was looking for a more durable prop and I wanted consistent weight and, and density, right? Now, were you walking to some location or just wandering around or how do you no, walk yeah. seven to 10 miles a day? I would pick a big loop and I just start walking. I've walked holes in several pairs of shoes. And I, <laughs> I literally take pair, uh, pictures of the shoes that I walk holes into. And uh, like even in the pandemic, believe it or not, I would walk in the beginning, like in 2020-ish, mm -hmm. I would walk five miles and people would just walk up to me and hand me money. Ah. I made several hundred dollars. Not joking. And one guy even handed me a $100 bill. He was just watching and was entertaining by you walking with your cane and I said, just, hey, yeah, I some just money. walk and people come up and hand me $10 or $5 if you're good. <laughs> you're good enough to pull the money out of the out of somebody's sure. pocket. And I wasn't solicited. So I was no, just no. walking with workout clothes on. And just going running drills. That's it. Now, do you listen to music while, while you do this walk or, or have other types of things to listen to? Yes. Most times I'm going to listen to music, but not all the time. It's, uh, yeah, sometimes. A lot of times I will do that. Because I know that you have a particular CD of affirmations and a particular book that you've listened to many, many times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So when I was uh, in my 20s, I kind of wanted to create my own religion in a way it worked for Elron hubbard i mean that worked for him so yeah i mean scientifically speaking yeah i actually 
took a book there, uh, The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success by Deepak Chopra. And I just memorized about 30 of the paragraphs, word for word, punctuation, everything. And it's really talking about behavior. It's not really talking. I mean, yeah, you could call it spirituality, but at the root of it, it's like, how do I want to behave as a person? And that's what those affirmations are. And for a couple of years, I mean, I just played that on repeat when I was sleeping or when I'm working and I kind of got rid of secular music there for a while. And I, you know, I took it very seriously, as seriously, as seriously as you can take something like that. One of the uh, seven spiritual laws that we can kind of apply to our lives. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, so the you like say what they are? <laughs> no, just, I mean, if you know all seven, that would be great. But Ooh. if there's one that sticks out, that would be fine. Yes. Let's talk about one of them, okay. which is interesting to me for this conversation. It's the law of Dharma or purpose in life. Okay. In that one, it talks about your flow state. Okay. Your flow state. Mm -hmm. And over the years, since 2008, I have been slowly filming a collaboration video with Canes. It's called Cocaine. And my flow state, if I could just do one thing and money was never an object, I really, really, really enjoy meeting people, filming a cocaine clip, rinse, repeat hundreds of times. I just really enjoy that. So yeah, my purpose in life or the, the, the time when I feel like I'm in a state of flow is those interactions. So what would you consider your dharma? Is it sharing this art of the cane or something else? No, I think it's all of what goes into the interactions. So, you know, I, I basically do the videography and then I do a little bit of the choreography, communicating the vision, the motivation, right? And you evolve, you meet people. And after 200 people, I started to actually, my personality started to adapt to people. And where can we see this? Is this something that's on YouTube? Oh, no, it hasn't been released. And unfortunately, it's a running joke in the juggling community that will never be released. But I assure you, <laughs> I still work on it more than anyone knows. Like, I just really want this piece of art to be what I would consider complete. And so I've been practicing hundreds of hours to fill in the other techniques and tricks that are just not there yet. And unfortunately, it's taking me forever to get these tricks. I just desperately want to be part of the tapestry. I mean, is there any kind of instruction available for the cane like online or that hasn't been done yet? Oh, no, there's there's a little bit. But most people just call me up and I just teach them over the phone. And I, I do mostly like teaching people how to innovate with prop movement, like how to go about it. And then, yeah, I do have a few videos on technique. But I don't think that people really suffer from the technique as much as because there's tutorials for everything everywhere. But what I think is developing as artists, like the work you do, uh, helping somebody develop as an artist, that I think is more needed. Like, how do you create tricks? How do you be innovative, right? Well, I think, like you said, there's a lot of uh, jugglers who are very high, highly skilled. In fact, one reached out to me recently who's an incredible juggler. Then it's like, well, how do I take that skill and translate it into something that people will pay me for? Right. Because only us really diehard jugglers would just watch someone juggle and not without the other trappings that make it entertaining to the general public, the comedy, the, the, the music, the presentation. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a separate skill almost. Like I say, some of us develop it as we go along because we have a background in other arts. A lot of other jugglers are just purely jugglers, more in the physical sense, more in the sporting sense. 
And then, then they try to develop that other sense of art- artistry and entertainment. It doesn't quite come quite as natural to those people who already have a background in the arts mm-hmm. of some sort. With regard to somebody, say, learning how to twirl, I do have some tutorials there available, but I don't really believe that that's... I mean, for the absolute beginner, yeah, they, they need those techniques. The, the, the fundamentals, the, the form, the correct form. But then it's very easy for people to get complacent and comfortable with their skill level and just kind of box themselves in as artists and just kind of repeat what other people are doing. Well, I mean, also in juggling, we, we tend to repeat what we do. I mean, there <laughs> certainly have been many jugglers who have created an eight-minute act mm-hmm. and perfected that. Yes. And that's basically their performance for their entire career will be mm-hmm. that. I mean, Chris Cremo comes to mind or Francis Brunn, which is sort of a, unfortunately, an older style that really doesn't translate as well nowadays simply because the opportunities aren't there Yeah, uh, for those type of acts. You're right. I, I totally agree. I mean, the longer you could do now, like a cruise ship, uh, some of them want two 45-minute sets. So as a juggler, that's that's quite the, you know, a lot more comedy will go into that than, than pure juggling. Even though someone I think like Michael Menez who just has a really great breadth of different skills, mm-hmm. can do a silent uh, show. Or I think Luke Barrage also uh, does mostly silent. Uh, but they have great variety in their juggling, mm-hmm. where, where most jugglers are sort of the balls, rings, clubs type. You yes. know, probably Anthony Gatto being the, the greatest example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that type of, of act, unfortunately, has gone out of, out of vogue a little bit. Now, yeah. as far as coaching, though, you did, you did develop a, a, a tool how far did you get with this Throwmaster 5000? Will you describe what that is? I think, yes. It's so, Throwmaster 5000 is essentially a metronome that I timed it so that the throws would be high enough. And unfortunately, I didn't keep using it for as long as I should have kept using it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of a sight swap thing based on the beats coming at certain times. In comparison to the heights of the throws? Yes, I can uh, make that available for people to download if they're interested. It's it's definitely worth using, I'll say. So, for example, I put accent notes on all of these site swaps that are for the five patterns to build to five. Oh, okay. So, for example, five with a hole, which is five, 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 oh. I think I did enough fives there. <laughs> so, yeah, five with a hole. Getting the timing right or keeping the timing right is a known problem for that particular pattern or 552 or 525, right? In essence, I just put the highlight notes where these throws should be and being able to get in and out of time, I think, is important as you're progressing with any pattern, right? Unfortunately, the numbers, I never actually have learned sight swap. I know that they correspond to the heights of the different throws. But I can't picture it in my mind uh, what those patterns look like. Have people given you the one-sentence site swap lesson? I'm sure they have, right? Do you have a one? I, I, I could hear it again if you have one. What is that? Yeah. So, like, let's just say you have three objects. And you have one red club and two white clubs, okay? Mm-hmm. The three is just when you're going to throw that object again. It's going to be every third beat for the three. That's just right easiest way to remember like there's three beats in a measure and you throw the red club on beat number one every time over and over and over again right because there's three beats per measure there's three objects so right. it repeats every three times and that's and side swap is excellent for in my opinion well for running drills right so five with a hole is just five with one missing but it's really important to get the timing of that one right 
I guess you may call it an, by another name, a four club chase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like f- five with a four. Yeah, okay. That is not at all very important. So if you go like left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left, you can throw those first two really high, and there's a lot of room you can fudge. Okay. Yeah. With uh, five with a hole, we're going right, left, right, left, blank. That there's not a lot of room for messing up there. So the timing, there's not a lot of the time that you can play with there. So like um, the, the difference between doing a four uh, sink and four async. You know, if you throw two canes up at once, then there's a big hang time where you could basically do a pirouette and still keep going, right? Mm, sure. But it's hard to do a pirouette if you're juggling, uh, say, four async. There's no time to, to pirouette, right? Right, unless you create that time with higher throws or, or more of a flashy then I those are sixes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so we're on the same page. That's. Uh, I understand. It. I just can't. When people have like a series of numbers, I lose track of having to be able to picture it in my mind. You're right, and I'm really not that guy. I basically teach people sight swap just as a way of doing drills to get to five or seven, but not the guys like Doug Sayers or somebody where they're just spitting all these numbers, and you you just tell Doug any side swap and he just runs it out of the, you know out of the blue like it's an art form in itself when it comes to him for me it's a it's a tool to to drill with <laughs> yeah i see like i was i was watching that spencer androli and he seems to be a guy that's really incorporated that side swap, and also jonah uh, botanic greenhouse that where they really have you can really see that oh those are side swaps they're doing mm-hmm. you really can see them in the pattern where Gatto, you know it seemed like more of a straightforward or albert lucas you can't go mm-hmm. oh he's doing side swaps it just seems like it's more straightforward juggling patterns just the, sure. the more base patterns i guess you'd call them yeah it's kind of a yeah i it could be argued that side swap is a little more modern because it was a little bit later well it came after my time i guess I, i'm kind of old school i certainly was uh, around when like i remember paul klimak i guess is one of the people that is considered sort of a father of side swap and i've known him for many years but uh it just never, I just maybe don't have that kind of mind that, that gravitated towards that. I was certainly aware of it early on. I just never incorporated it. Well, somebody told me, well, just think music theory and beats per measure. And I was done. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I got you. <laughs> well, I like the idea that you're quite the, the innovator. Now, the Strowmaster 5000, that's a, an app someone could have? Or uh, how would someone incorporate that? Sure, I can make it available for download on canefreestyle.com within three hours. Okay, so canefreestyle.com for the Throwmaster sure. 5000. Yes, and all it is is just a, like a recorded metronome. And, you know, I debated this back in 2007 when rec.juggling.org was a thing mm-hmm. to say, hey, you know, how, what do you all think about this idea? And I got both positive and negative uh, feedback from there. But now I kind of just let uh, Richard Kennison talk in my left and right ear and say, hire, just hire, hires <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah. He, have, do you have used him as a coach? Because I know he has a, a coaching business and uh, he's probably the only full-time juggling coach in the United States. Do you work with him on Zoom or, or in person? Every time I get around him, I pick his brain, but, and then I also watch him coach others, but I haven't like say formally hired him, but uh, yeah, he's right. I mean, a lot of it does have to do with height. Of course he's right. He's been doing it for a long mm. time. I know he likes to start with a very high pattern. Like he's, like he has lots of drills with like a very five high pattern. Like if you can do it high, it's more important, you know, to have good form than maybe even low and fast. 
Yeah, and I would add something to his lessons. I really haven't heard him say that I can recall, which is just the relaxation. So I'm six foot six, I'm 245 pounds, and I'm wondering how these 10-year-old kids can run five clubs to say 75 catches or more, and I'm burnt out at 225 catches or less, (laughs) Right, right? right? And what I figured out was it was me. My own muscles are working against me. So it's so much tension. I'm trying to muscle the pattern. So I think that that would be an additional lesson because if you're trying to throw high, you're automatically thinking, well, I am, that high means a lot of muscle. Well, if you use a lot of muscle, then unfortunately some of your muscles can fight other muscles. And you burn out really quick. So now you see like this whole uh, threshold where most people, when they're working on five clubs, for example, they're going to kind of plateau around 25 or 30 for a while. <laughs> no, I totally get it. Because uh, if you get into a pattern where you're kind of doing it sort of effortlessly, it kind of feels like you're sort mm-hmm. of in the flow of the pattern. It feels very effortless, like you're mm-hmm. not muscling it. But when you're struggling and like every throw is a correction, every throw just seems a little bit off. And you're, you get very tense in your musculature. And it does sort of harder to maintain if you're just struggling with every throw. And breathing. You run out of air at 25 catches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, breathing. That's another important one. If you're not breathing, you're not going to be able to keep the patterns very long without uh, passing out. So I'm wondering how the 10-year-old kid learns not to muscle it and how to breathe. That's where I'm at. It's all mental for me, you know? Well, you and I have something in common because I'm also six foot six and two forty, <laughs> so I know what it's like to be a big muscular man. So you know. yeah, it's it's sad because I'm <laughs> like, how am I burnt out at eighteen catches? That doesn't make sense. Well, I think because we're so muscular, so we're so muscular <laughs> that it kind of it's like that's not the best build for a juggler. Like the best build is probably like Peter Davison, you yeah. know, or, or Andy Head, that kind of tall but thin, lithe. I guess you'd say lithe. Uh, L-I-T-H-E kind of kind of physique. Well, most is, uh, of my muscle is inside my head. So there's mm. that. I mean. <laughs> yes. <laughs> People have said my brain is very muscular. <laughs> They've also said I have the ear hair of a Greek god. So that, I have that going for me. So. Hey, but when we get back to inventions, I have one more note. I don't want to uh, skip this one. Sure. This one sounds kind of fascinating. What is the mick? Uh, oh, yeah. that's a, I'm glad you brought that up. Mick, and believe it or not, there is... Okay, so what is MIC? MIC stands for MIDI Interface Computer Controller, okay? Oh, so MIC is not, how do you spell it then? I have an M-I-C-K. Yes. Okay. So controller is with a K? Controller controller in German (laughs) is with a K, I think. (laughs) I thought it stood for keyboard. No. Okay. No, (laughs) no. MIC is MIDI Interface Computer Controller. And back when I came up with the idea, I had coincidentally a landlord named Mick who was a crack addict. And so he influenced this thing as well. But basically what I was trying to do was make music practical, okay? Because when I was in my 30s, I had just a boatload of hobbies, off-road unicycling, trying to practice piano for hours a day, trying to write code, trying to juggle, right? So how are you going to make time for all this stuff, right? So what I wanted to do is create this MIDI interface computer controller so that you could use your digital piano to write code or to browse the internet. I think that's a great idea, that use a piano instead of a keyboard. Right. I think that's fascinating. 
Yeah. And and then think about all the use cases that you know theoretically, uh, if a child is, uses this instrument thing and and they forget an answer to a question, they might remember it's a major sound or a minor sound and re- be able to recall the information based on the sound that they associate with it. I also made it so that you could turn off the sound and just use it without sound, of course, and you could remap. There's like a text file for the configuration. So you could remap it after you get the muscle memory just to mess with you. And how far did you go with that? Was that something you ever I actually got, I got the alpha version. I got a working version working in, I think it might've been Pearl or I'm not sure, but I got a working version and it was amazing how fast I was picking it up as far as like learning where the keys were and you learn actually pretty quickly. And another theory that I had was, I mean, listen to a piano player like Oliver Jones or anyone. It seems like their keystrokes are faster than a typist keystrokes on a keyboard. So my theory was, hey, you could be faster. And then I did like intervals for different alternate keys, like enter was perfect fifth and a backspace would be a minor second and delete would be a major second. All of this makes sense if you know music theory. Yeah, that was, oh, and alt was a tritone. See, that's a music joke. It's mm-hmm. funny. <laughs> uh, the alternative lifestyle or the devil symbol, right? So yeah, a tritone would be the alt key and it's very rarely used, right? Now, when's the last time you used the alt key, right? <laughs> the, the computer has an alt key? Yes. <laughs> no, I think I use it in conjunction with uh, control and delete. Mm-hmm. The only time. Yeah, control alt delete. Yeah, I do that to lock my screen. But yeah, I, I get your point. I uh so this was this mic, and the idea was for all the use cases like being able to play video games using a musical instrument so that parents and their children wouldn't have so many arguments about video game playing because it's still music practice at the end of the day, right? Yeah, I saw this video game the other day at an arcade. It was basically a drum set. Right. And the, 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 the things came down visually, and he had to try to hit them, hit the drums in time with this kind of Missile Command-esque you know, uh, lights coming down on the screen. Mm-hmm. I don't play video games anymore. I, I was a pinball player, but I lost it when they had all the, the new games. But I thought, wow, that's just a guy playing the drums, basically, as a game. And I thought that was great. Well, yeah, and they they have a lot of music-based games like Guitar Hero out there now. So when I searched back when I was creating Mick, I learned that over, if I recall correctly, in Italy, they were using PCs and digital pianos to do stenography. So it existed in that form. But now if you go look for open source software, you can find something close to Mick in existence out there now. And where are the juggling base games, though? That would be pretty interesting. Like if you saw something, you had to duplicate it. You'll have to juggling. contact Nathan Peterson for that stuff. <laughs> Is that something he's working on? or he, uh, He's the guy for that kind of thing. You know, he just... <laughs> well, hopefully I can get him on a future uh, Drop Everything. This is... This is episode 105, and we just seem to keep going, so... Well, you gotta get Nathan Peterson. Eventually, everybody will be on Drop Everything. Huh? I don't want to talk to him. I don't know. Yeah, of course. But eventually, I'll just run out of jugglers, so everybody will have a chance to be on Drop Everything after a certain point. Yeah, but Peterson's a better juggler than me. You could have done him first. No, I'm just kidding. Well... (laughs) I'm joking. Well, part of the problem is, I think... I know that the IJ is kind of in a, a time where we're trying to have more diversity mm. and more 
different cultures represented, not only in the IJ, but also uh, in this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I realized at a certain point, a lot of my guests are old white guys. There you uh, go. And it's, you know, you don't want to, to like reach out to somebody purely because of their race. They have to have an interesting story as well. Mm-hmm. But just numbers wise, it's a, it's, a, it's a harder sell. It's a harder find. To, most professional jugglers, especially the old school guys uh, like myself, are old white guys. Right. So, so, you know, as we look around and we haven't really talked about the fact that you're six foot six and 240, but you're also African-American, which right. makes you stand out quite a bit at these festivals. Uh, yeah. And I'm loud. Yeah. And gregarious <laughs> yeah. and loquacious and talkative yeah. and, chatty and share redundant. There you go. Well, let's talk about your experiences at juggling festivals and how you were received uh, both as um, a larger black man and also the guy with a, a, an odd prop. Like you say, well, there's a lot of resistance first because they were wooden and people thought they might be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Have you found that overall people are kind of receptive to? I know I was because I've also been a twirler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you when they had that, I thought, okay, that kind of fits into my skill set. Do people seem kind of dismissive of it, or do they want to try it when you approach other jugglers? What's your feeling about um, you know bringing that to our culture? This this cane work. I think it's there's a smaller picture and there's a bigger picture. First of all, I'm glad that you had the awareness to know that your the people that you're inviting all look the same. Yeah. Likewise, <laughs> when it comes to juggling clubs. I think a little bit of extra effort should be made to recruit people that are somewhat different. If not for the culture of it, but then for the art form, having the different influences on juggling would give us more variety and ultimately give us better art. So there's that part of it, right? Mm -hmm. But then looking, stepping back, if you look, um, there's a lot of segregation in prop movement overall. The Kappa cane twirlers don't hang out much with the baton twirlers and the baton twirlers don't hang out with the jugglers and the jugglers don't hang out with the spinners and the spinners don't hang out with the yo-yo guys. Mo- and yes, I know there's exceptions like myself I or Annetta Lucera where we're constantly going from one community to the other. But generally speaking, there is an inclusion or exclusion based on your prop and your style, Right. So there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens of how things are to be done, right? Well, there's also that discussion of what is juggling and what isn't juggling. Just well, the, have the jugglers say it, everything's juggling. But <laughs> what I was trying to do, I think that the cane is one of the two best props. And, and I will say because of the hook, it, it can work like a hula hoop. And because of the, the, the size, it can be like a baton or a club or poi. Um, so it can be twirled like a drumstick or twirled like a baton or tossed like a juggling club. And so it's, I think, the most utilitarian. A lot of different prop movement artists can use it right out of the gate. Whereas if you give a ball to a baton twirler, they're going to have nothing for you. You see? What's the second prop? You said the cane was one of two. What do you consider the other prop? We're going to revisit that in a second. Okay. But getting back to the cane... One of my arrogant visions with the cocaine project was to get the various prop movement communities to express their art using the same prop as a way to bridge between the different prop movement cultures. Because if you look at the baton tours, for example, they do the dance with the choreography, right? And they have a whole style of putting shows together and scoring that I think could be beneficial to juggling and vice versa. 
right? I totally agree. That's a, that's a good point. And if you take even the best jugglers that you can name, let's be honest, you can only watch them for about three to 30 minutes before you get bored. What's important is the variety in what they're doing. So if you had someone like Gatto, who could also twirl like Aneta Lucero, it would be more interesting just by default, right? Because you don't know what to expect. You, there's, there's less repetition. There's more variety. There's more creativity. And having that surprise and, and tension and release and being able to tell a story comes not from repetition, but being able to have all the different skills and styles. So cane freestyle, this art form that I was trying to, or that I'm developing, is this idea of one prop, many different, all the different props movement uh, techniques on one prop, you see? And we should probably stress that your video, the cocaine series, cocaine is spelled C-O-C-A-N-E. Oh, yes. It's a <laughs> controversial name, but I got hooked well, on Well, when it, you see so. it written out, it's very, very obvious because it's a cane video. <laughs> and it's kind sure. of a collaboration, so it makes perfect sense. Right. And I, I had a couple debates about that particular name, but I got hooked on it. And so... So you got hooked on cocaine. <laughs> we're, taking, we're taking quotes from the, the, the drop everything. Did you hear about yes. down? Yeah, hooked on cocaine. Right, and I'm like, I always want to travel the world so I can do cocaine. <laughs> exactly. Would you be interested in having me bring cocaine to your country? <laughs> right. It's too good to pass up, so I had to do it. And for those people that are so strict that they would really get offended by this, this term, okay, well, I'm happy with the 440 people I already have in the video. We're good. <laughs> well, like I say, once you see it written out and you understand the concept behind it, it sure. makes perfect sense. It's just for people who maybe jump to, to some kind of initial negative connotation, which you have no desire to to really have them think about sure. or, or perpetuate. But it's kind of also a bit uh, attention getting, mm -hmm. which is always important. And to be fair, I mean, you, if you take all the little things like the caffeine, the Ritalin, the Adderall, the cocaine, it's all kind of the same thing. And trust me, you have do have some performance enhancement with a little bit of caffeine. Have you experienced that? I'm not a coffee drinker, but I have experienced uh, performance enhancement with other types of substances, which I okay. won't detail here. But I, I'm not a person who shies away from experimenting mm -hmm. uh, with sort of an altered state mm -hmm. you know, while juggling. I think that when a certain mindset or a certain person that can open particular creative avenues mm -hmm. yeah which, well, which... like for my last performance i just take one caffeine pill it's 200 milligrams you buy it at walmart and without that pill without that one oof, <laughs> <laughs> my drop rate will be double i would find for myself that would make me too it would probably make me too jittery too uh... oh yeah i need the jittery i need you the jittery. Like that Oh, because like, I, again, I have problems, serious problems with ADHD. When I'm drilling five, I'm daydreaming. So I, I, even when I was on performing just last week, I had a hard time staying in the moment. My mind was drifting while I was performing. <laughs> yeah. And so I need, I need to be on edge. I need to have that stress and anxiety and whatever to stay in the moment. It just, I have a hard time with it. I'm always... My mind is always somewhere else. Well, that's that's not a great thing. Like you say, no. you, you want to be in the moment. You want to be focused on the performance. And if you find your, your mind wandering, like, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? Mm -hmm. I know during, during some corporates uh, events, like with uh, the Raspini brothers, since it was a pretty set, to some degree, a set pattern of routines and, you know, this follows that. 
and obviously my partner would sometimes be doing more than I would, mm. my mind would wander and I'd have to bring it back. And most yes. things, what, what, I, what I have to eat after the show is what a big one for me. Well, for me, I look up and I go, oh, there's a cane coming down. I'm supposed to catch that now. <laughs> like right, it's right. a surprise almost. And I'm like, but, but, the, but the other flip side of it, though, is sometimes I can get into a state of flow where it's just all just, I don't know, you don't need your mind at all. You just do. And it just happens. And to be honest with you, those are the times I want to catch that on video. It's dropless. It's awesome. It just all works. Well, that's a good description of the flow state that we talked about earlier. Sure. Where you're like, oh my God, I'm already done with my three ball routine. How'd that happen? So there's this double-edged sword or this uh, paradox where I want to be mindless, right? But I need to be mindful. So it's like you have to be in the moment or you have to be in a state of flow. That middle ground is where all the drops happen. <laughs> and I think drops beget drops. Like, like some people, they're good, but they have that first drop and it's kind of like you see the door open in their psyche mm -hmm. of, oh, uh-oh. And they, the flow is kind of ruined. Next mm -hmm. thing you know, it's like one drop leads to many drops where they need to kind of just reset and just pick it up from there without bringing their mind back to the moment they just had. Yeah, and then and sometimes the audience, it happens where the audience actually just doesn't care. Like, if you're just good enough, there is a point somewhere in sometimes where the audience doesn't care. It also could be like an applause break where they're finally like, finally, like, wow, he actually dropped. Like, we, they applaud the drop because it's like mm -hmm. a moment for them to interact mm -hmm. and express their appreciation for what's come before. They're not applauding the drop the fact that you've gone so long without a drop well i don't really let that happen anyway because in my opinion you gotta phrase your show so that, that you're really running like 15 to 30 second and then there's a pause there's a finished trick or some sort of pause mm -hmm. for the audience to come in because i've seen a lot of guys that you know even in competition i would argue their skill is better and they throw a whole boatload of tricks down the audience doesn't have time to be part of that conversation and I'll just beat them by taking space. Well, that's a perfect word. I mean, I use that in my coaching. It's a conversation. Mm -hmm. It has their part to play in laughter and applause. It has to be a communication between both sides. Mm -hmm. It was just, hey, watch me juggler, watch me twirl the cane. And the audience is very, very passive. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really work. It has to be that, oh, we have a part to play too for the audience. And from my observation, some of the artists, they start out kind of insecure or whatever, and they build up a massive amount of skill, and then they just kind of leave the audience behind, and then they turn around and say, the audience is stupid, that the audience <laughs> doesn't know what they're looking at. Right. I could show you videos where there's guys that are better than me, say, for example, with one cane, and you can hear a pin drop during their performance. They get no crowd response. I'm like, no, you don't want to do that. No. You know, it doesn't matter if you're technically good, if you can't, if the crowd isn't engaged, if they're not getting what you're putting down. Like, it's not that they're wrong. Actually, the audience is usually right. A good example, I have to throw this one down, is the Phil Award. They always take three judges out of the audience. But look at who they're picking as winners. It tracks to be the best of the best. And you're a Phil winner, right? That's the uh, Groundhog's Day Festival. Sure. What year did you win your Phil? Ooh, I think it was 2013. It was at the 35th Groundhog Day Jugglers Festival. In, okay, I think it was 2013. In 2013. Yep, I have it right here in my notes. 
that was my most nervous performance of all time. I was scared out of my mind. Doesn't show it on the video, but I assure you, I was scared. <laughs> well, maybe those nerves helped you get in the, in the zone, like you were more focused because of those nerves. I don't know. And I've performed for larger audiences and wasn't scared. But when I was trying to do that stage performance, my legs, my little knees inside my pants started to turn and walk off stage. Like I was going to run off hysterically crying. And, ah! Like I was going to lose it. So I was like, start the music. Because I knew that if I could get 15 seconds in, it'll be okay. Now, what kind of a, a competitions do they have in just the cane and that kind of? Is there actually fraternity awards, or how do you how do you judge the the cane competitions? Well, coincidentally, I've served as a judge and a competitor, and most recently, I think I'm going to pull myself as a judge and and reassign myself as a competitor. So yeah, we do have competitions where it's exclusive to canes. However, I personally don't really love those competitions as much as I love competing against artists that don't use canes or other fraternities, right? So I've competed against poets, musicians, oh. <laughs> right, singers. Singers are hard to beat. Sure. Uh, like steppers, break dancers, right? Yeah. So I, I think that that type of competition is is fun and challenging. Well, one trick you do that I wanted to ask you about because I don't quite understand. It has in my notes you debuted two canes with no hands. How does someone do a canes with no hands? Okay, so when I teach the innovation workshop, as a way to get to innovation, I say use a regressive style or just start removing things you can do. Okay, that's a path to creativity. So a lot of times people will think that in when creating things, you, you should think of all that could be possible. And instead, I'm saying reduce what is possible. Start removing things like eyesight, remove hands. OK, so just by saying you're going to remove hands while working with two canes. So the canes are going to that one rule is the canes have to be there and they have to be under some sort of control and you're not going to use your hands. Okay, now solve that problem. And it's very easy to solve that problem once you just set some rules and, and then you come up with a solution, right? Would that be like your forearms or, or is that I'm, that's what I'm picturing, that you do it on your forearms? No. No, I, I balance a cane on my head and then I have another cane on my right ankle spinning. Oh, okay. And then I just hold my hands out. So now you have two canes under control with no hands. Right. Similarly, I did one where I was like, OK, I'm going to do a one minute cane performance with one with no hands with one cane. And that's just a seal roll with a with a scorpion kick at the end. What kind of roll? I forgot. I know the scorpion kick. That's sort of the blind kick from behind you. What was the first part? The guy that really is the master is Sean Blue, right? He does the seal roll. Oh, is that like a, the ball spinning on your hand on your fingers? Well, no, sorry. Oh, so you balance. balance balance a club yeah. on your hand. You kneel down. You sit down. You kick your legs out. You roll over on your stomach like a seal. Oh, you continue okay. to roll, sit up, and stand yeah. up, and then let the cane fall off your head and kick it with a scorpion kick. Yeah, that's a trick that certainly has become very popular. Is that that scorpion? Oh, I've yeah. never been able to do it, but I, it's certainly, uh, I think the first one I saw do that a lot was maybe Ivan Pissell. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it goes all the way back to Larry, uh, Larry V, though, because he used to do that with balls back in like the mm -hmm. 80s. Yeah, and I, there's this guy out there named uh, 
well, he has a long name. He's from a different country, hyphenated name. But he, he does a double scorpion kick. And I'm like, man, he done raised the bar. That's not. Is that one club twice or both feet at the same yeah, time? Yeah, he kicks a scorpion kick and then he kicks it again. And then Kellen Quinn just did, didn't Kellen Quinn kick, uh, do one recently where he he's like, doing some crazy stuff, like with rolls and kicking and just really, he's very creative. I think Kellen like caught a ring with his foot kicked it over his head, Scorpion kicked it back over. I think yeah. that's, yeah, I'm like, come on, man. Don't raise the bar on Scorpion kicks. Yeah, it's quite a series on Facebook, almost like one a day, it seems like. I try to get him on the uh, podcast, so hopefully I'll get him on a future episode. He's a, okay. he's busy. He's a, one of those guys that has to make time for the Drop Everything podcast eventually, I hope. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. He's a great guy. I'm sure he'll, he'll do it. I don't know him. I don't know him personally, but I, I really enjoy his, his work oh, a lot. He's- He's a great, he's, I love that guy. I mean, there's, you know, I I like most, I pretty much everybody, (laughs) but he's, he's in cocaine and he's one of the most talented. He he definitely put in the work and then he's got a great personality to go with it. It's just, he's easy to work with. Well, I think Richard Kisson told me that he was one of his favorite jugglers. So that's another sign that he's, he's got something going on. Oh, he's, yeah, he's got a lot going on. It's just, is what it is. I mean, shoot. I would say spend $3,000 to get half his skills at one Well, I mean, he's also one of those guys, unfortunately, where you're like, okay, uh, to the people who understand what he's doing, it's it's brilliant, it's creative, uh, it's well well worth uh, paying for. Mm-hmm. Once again, juggling is not really held in that great of a regard. So I think it's hard for the general public to appreciate. To them, I think a lot of juggling looks the same. They don't go, oh, this guy's doing completely original, different stuff. Right. I wouldn't get that. Yeah, I I don't know. I haven't really done like customer discovery or interviewed people. I think they know. And and see, that's what I was alluding to earlier is that I think the audience is a lot smarter than we give them credit for, but not also. It's it's kind of interesting. They know a lot. Uh, let me let me give one real quick story. So like sure. when I was doing the uh the walking 5 miles during the pandemic, okay? No, I'm not joking. This guy he was across Candler Road and, and he yells over at me and he goes, pay attention. He's like, you, your, your mind wasn't focused, you know, 100 yards ago. And now your mind is focused. You need to remember to pay attention. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> no, and, and guys will be like, uh, yeah, you need to be thrown higher. And then some people will be like, yeah, your drop rate is high today. What's wrong with you? Oh, like, that's I'm funny. not joking. It's like, I'm like, how are they knowing things that a real coach, like a real juggling coach would know? And I'm down like in a lower socioeconomic neighborhood and they're just spitting this stuff out like and I'm like, wow, how would they know? I don't know how they know, but they know. Well, there are people are just intuitive. Speaking of people who don't know, uh, I've always felt that the judges on America's Got Talent really knew Oof. nothing about juggling. Oh, and I have it in my notes. Did you audition for America's Got Talent? What was that experience like? Well, you know, they like the diversity. So I ended up getting a little teeny bit of screen time based on the fact that I'm black and I unicycle. (laughs) Right, right. But my cane skills weren't what they were after at the time. Plus, the application that I turned in wasn't flattering to myself. They're like, is this your passion in life to do cane freestyle? Do you want to be like a pro? Is, do you want to make a million dollars as a cane artist? I'm like, no, I, I'll be <laughs> honest. No, I don't. I, I, no. <laughs> like, you can't I'm be honest. honest in show business to get anywhere, Drew. You, you got to know that. <laughs> right. I'm like, so, and then they, uh, I was there 
on the second generation where the rules were just a little bit wonky. And then right after me, they changed the rules to be like, you you, you remember. Huge controversy because the, the rules became insane. The terms and conditions of being in that competition, I would never do it now. Based on what I reviewed the rules after I participated way back in the day. I know some jugglers have made it work. Obviously, the passing zone have done quite well. Victor Key. Mm-hmm. is unfortunately one of those kind of necessary evils nowadays to sort mm-hmm. of do these kind of competition shows because the other shows don't exist. I definitely appreciate the passing zone for performing. I'm just thinking that for somebody like me who's a little bit like artiste <laughs> right. and a little bit of a chip on their shoulder, kind of like, oh, I would never sign that contract. But again, yeah. I'm not a real pro. I'm just an extreme hobbyist. Although I will say that I got a job last year and I made a few grand, and I'm happy okay. about that. What was the job? What'd you do? I got a job as one of those sign spinners, okay? Right, right. I like the sign spinners. That's, that's dangerous, though. Those things are heavy. They're insanely good. And the reason why they're so good is because their shifts are like four to six hours. Some of these guys are doing 12-hour shifts. I'm not joking. Yeah. So they're getting so much practice time. And you're right. Those things are... Like when I first started with the sign, I would smash myself in the face, like broke my jaw. It was like just ow. Right. Yeah, it's a lot harder than it looks. The signs are very heavy and they catch the wind. Well, what I did was I was like, you know, you mind if I uh, use some canes a little bit? <laughs> right, right. And now I'm exclusive canes. I can go out there and I've proven myself that I can perform at or better than sign spinners using canes only. Right. You can kind of direct people in the direction you want them to go. And it's Mm -hmm. very visual. Now, is that something you want to continue doing? I do. I do. Um, The only problem was that my commute was horrible because unfortunately it was like an hour through rush hour each way. And it would be like two to three hour commute. I mean, there's a lot of benefit. First of all, I was drilling five. Literally, right. I was getting paid to practice, okay? Then people were giving me attaboys, normal feedback is good because if you're performing in front of people, you can figure out what they like because they're beeping horns or they're screaming sure. at you or they're handing you money, right? <laughs> right, right, right. I like that and I would continue to do it. It's just that I have to do places that are not so far. But I will say for anybody who's interested in making a little bit of money while they practice, I could probably help you get that particular gig. Uh, Just hit me up and I'll help you sell it, like help you get into it because they are a prop movement community with their own rules and culture. Okay, so you do have to come in a little bit. uh, Yeah, I always thought that would be great in the IGA show that that kind of because I like it. I like I, Mm -hmm. I, I picked one up. But I thought, wow, these are a lot heavier than I thought they would be. And the idea of hitting myself with one, I thought, with the wind and everything was not something Mm -hmm. I I No, it's insanely bad. Like, just take one of those things or just a piece of plywood and walk out there with a 15-mile-an-hour wind. And it's like, no. So, yeah, I I took the canes out there and I just drilled five. And my five hasn't improved, but I got paid for it not to improve. So there's that. Now, what do you do for for a living then? Since you're not a full-time performer, you, you pick up sometimes. What is your, your day-to-day? Real estate, I'm, I kind of specialize in passive income, so I don't really have a schedule. Okay. I kind of just work when I feel like it, on what I feel like it. But real estate is my 
kind of my go-to real estate investing and um, passive real estate investing. And currently I write the code to build what I'm calling a fully automated real estate empire. It basically takes different real estate service providers and makes a platform they can all share the same data and the same tools and solve each other's pain points solve each other's problems. So I just interviewed a whole bunch of people in real estate and said, what are your problems? And figured out the other real estate people could solve those problems. And if you just bring them together with code, it's done. So we're at the start of the Drew Brown empire, basically. Well, I I like that. I like that idea. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. And I wish that I had this code done already because it's really cutting into my juggling practice. But I will say that at the way that I code, so I code like a 12 to 15 hours, 6 to 12, 15 hours, sometimes 20, sometimes more. And then I'll take like a day off or whatever. The most important thing that I found was juggling really helped me in several areas of my life. First, I used to have a temper problem, okay? And after juggling and dropping like seriously a thousand times per practice or whatever, and you have your little temper tantrums, eventually you have less temper tantrums. You can like desensitize yourself or you know, expose yourself to some frustration and then learn how to deal with it, right? That's number one. Yeah, number that makes two, sense. if I'm juggling, well, first of all, like if, I, if I'm if i going to do a juggling practice, I drink a two liter of water for breakfast, okay? So, because I have to be <laughs> hydrated. I have sure. to be hydrated. And the water helps my health. And I had for a second, when I wasn't juggling, high blood pressure, got rid of my high blood pressure. And I assure you that I would burn out in literally a week or two if I didn't do juggling interspersed with the coding, because the coding at the way that I do it, unfortunately is not very healthy. So breaking it up with this exercise, specifically juggling has helped me so I don't burn out. So in a way I need, and then I, last year I went through a whole bunch of emotional problems and it helped me with that too. Yeah, juggling has really been like a necessity for me, especially in these later years. Well, that's great. I mean, unfortunately, we're getting to the end of our time. It's been a really quick, fun conversation. Any last messages you want to share? I mean, as far as your experience with juggling and how we can kind of make juggling more diverse? I don't want to put you on the spot, but how do we encourage more uh, diverse people to take part in our activity? Just by being aware like yourself that you really want diversity, I don't think that you... I will say that there are some, sometimes uh, jugglers can can seem a little off-putting. Maybe they're going to say something insensitive here or there, right? But I don't think that's so much the problem, but be very welcoming. And it's who you invite to your club. Try inviting other artists in, other pop movement artists and other demographics in. That will grow the juggling community. And we've seen examples of that, like in St. Louis and and others uh, places and that collaboration between the prop movement communities is extremely valuable to push the art forward and the last thing i would say is try to reduce the gatekeeping as much as possible that affects all the different prop movement cultures a lot of these prop movement cultures get very popular and then they lose their popularity once the ogs become judges and start gatekeeping on what is cool and what isn't cool and the politics and all that stuff that influences and, and basically crushes the innovation that's coming up. Because the judges, they can be self-serving. And I've seen it not, it's, this is not a juggling thing. It's all the prop movement communities, including the 
the one that I came from, which is the cane twirling. That's the most important thing. You just got to remember the art is very important. And to get the better art, you really want to bring in diverse artists. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all juggling and we're all jugglers. Uh, well, we're all human. <laughs> well, we all have the potential to juggle or be jugglers. So that's, that's, that's what makes us human. Yeah, I guess I would say that. See, that's a that's a good important point. If you invite a baton twirler over there, do not dare call them a juggler. We're not all jugglers. We're you know, we're all it's it's like a thing you just gotta like accept them coming in from their perspective and don't you can't throw your label on them, which mm. is what jugglers do and what judges do. Yeah, it's 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 frustrating. I've won competitions where I end up competing against the judges, not the audience or the competitors. Yeah, they're the gatekeepers. Right. So it's very important that the words that come out of your mouth isn't, this is our culture and how we do things here, and you're welcome to be part of us, as opposed to, you're welcome. Who are you? What is your culture? Let's bring it into, like, have a potluck of prop movement. This is different. You see? I like that. A potluck of pop, prop movement. Those are, those are good uh, good words to end on. So Thank you. I like to say thanks, thank, thank you, Drew Brown, for being part of the Drop Everything experience and being my guest. It's an honor. Oh, I, I appreciate that. I wish you the best and hope to see you again. Uh, I hope it won't be another 20 years or so. But yeah. Cause maybe one of these summers at a, at a festival. Can I steal one more minute? Of course. Of course. I thought you were going to ask me about my favorite jugglers, okay? Sure, sure. No, go ahead. And I have this vision that I must try to sell you on right now. Okay. And you asked a question earlier that I didn't answer. You were saying, what's the other best? Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. Right? Here's the vision. We've got Dan Holzman and we've got Zach McAllister helping and we've got Drew Brown helping teeny tiny bit just with the idea. And the prop is printer paper. Printer paper. Yes. You can do the airplanes. You can ball it up as juggling balls. You can, they're magic with paper, like Paper is that ultimate prop, I assure you. Like okay. 300 pages of printer paper. Think about all the creative things that could be done by thinking about all the things that can be done with paper. And you would be the guy to do it. Okay, so we'll, we'll create the co-paper video to yes. go along with the cocaine series, the co-paper. And we'll be making paper. Yeah, so. exactly. We'll be making paper too. I, I like that. All right. Well, thank you for your time. And thanks for including me on this uh podcast series and i enjoy it i listen to it and i recommend other people do as well thanks Drew, and thanks for being a guest on drop everything i really appreciate it thank you bye-bye i hope you enjoyed drop everything podcast number 105 my conversation with drew brown go to canefreestyle.com and check out the latest in cane freestyle tricks that's canefreestyle.com also go to the ija's website at juggle.org and find out about the festival this year taking place in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And while you're on the computer, go to Amazon.com and buy my latest novel, Budsuckers. Rate, review, and have fun reading about stoner vampires. All right, go out there, drop everything, except when you're juggling.